uh, deal with those a little more specifically and a little more extensively. But today, uh, I want to just kind of work our way through a little more, a little more, um, I guess, uh, a little more expositionally the rest of this section here, so that we can uh, be set up to move into this beautiful uh, chapter in First Corinthians chapter thirteen. So. Um, let's look at the verses together, starting in verse 27 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The Apostle Paul says this, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Now, Paul here continues, as we have been discussing and seeing off and on as we've been talking about this section, he's continuing this overarching sort of exhortation and instruction to the Corinthians um, that is, you might say, encapsulated in, in one way or another in that very first verse that we read, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. As you may recall earlier in the chapter, he really dealt extensively with the body of Christ using that metaphor in a very extensive and I would say very compelling and poignant way to illustrate the spiritual reality of the body of Christ being one body put together uh, uh, from many parts sovereignly by the Spirit of God so that in the context of the local church, Christ's spiritual body, you have, by the sovereign work of the Spirit of God, this beautiful and wondrous blend of unity and diversity. Diversity of gifts, diversity of offices, Diversity of manifestations of gifts, diversity of effects of gifts, diversity of contexts in which those gifts are used, but nonetheless, all a part of the body, all given by the Spirit of God who has baptized all of us into his body. So you have this this weaving together of this beautiful body metaphor with these rich doctrines of, of truth as it relates to the work of the Spirit and the sovereign work of baptizing believers into his body and bringing them together. So he gets to this last section, and he's just sort of putting an exclamation point on this crucial principle, this crucial truth. We're talking about the body of Christ. We're talking about it being made up of many members. We're talking about the interdependency of all the members of the body of Christ, that not one part of the body can say to the other, I have no need of you. Not one part of the body can say of themselves, because I am not this or that, I am not a part of the body. So he he goes to great lengths to sort of paint this incredible picture of our spiritual unity that is comprised of individually many members with a diversity of gifts and workings of gifts in the life of the church. So as such, and this is really thematic through the entire letter as well, there is literally no place in the church for any kind of elitist attitudes or sort of man-made stratifications of people according to gifts or abilities or 
human notions of status or accomplishment or, or talents or giftedness. Because the apportionment of gifts and the arrangement of members in the body are sovereign works of the Spirit. So in other words, the Apostle Paul is saying this is not just a practical reality. This is a transcendent truth. It's an inescapable truth. It is a sovereignly ordained reality. This is how God, by the Spirit, has arranged the body, and you are that body, he says. You are who I'm talking about. Now, this is really the tip of a spear of Paul's rebuke as well in this section, because obviously in saying that, in a bit of a repeated refrain, if you will, he is highlighting the fact that the Corinthians were not functioning this way. This, this elitist kind of mindset was prevalent within the church. And he's, he's been going after this. If you go back to verses 12 and 13, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So there was stratification in the life of the church, likely a stratification according to whether you were a Jew or a Greek, whether you were slave or free. So they brought into the life of the church the very common and very um, worldly, not godly, but very worldly modes of stratification, of breaking people off into these various groups. And so he emphasizes the fact that this is not who the body of Christ is. And he confronts this prevailing attitude, which if you recall, going all the way back to chapter 4, he, he, is, he is going after this prevailing attitude. In chapter 4, verses 7 to 8, he, he asked them this question, for who sees anything different in you? So there's a sense in which the Apostle Paul, over and over and over again, layer upon layer of rhetoric and teaching and instruction, he is rebuking these Corinthian believers because they had totally uh, just misused and abused an understanding of spiritual giftedness in the life of the church. In chapter 4, he says, who sees anything different in you? I mean, are, are you kidding me? Why, why, what do you have that you didn't receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, there's a sort of a sense of stunned disbelief in, in Paul's you know, communication here. Don't you see this? And then he goes on to sort of sarcastically you know, mimic the, 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 the spirit of the Corinthian believers. Already you have all you want. Already you become rich. Without us, you become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. So we need to keep this sort of context in mind as we continue to move through the rest of this study. The Apostle Paul is carrying forward this rebuke, this exhortation, this instruction on the spiritual nature of the body of Christ in that it is sovereignly put together by the Spirit as He chooses, as He deems appropriate and good. And yet there's going to be a diversity of gifts that is according to the Spirit's sovereign purpose as well. And as such, because this is a work of God and it's according to His purpose, 
And because there's going to be diversity in that apportionment or allocation or appointment, if you will, by the spirit of gifts and gifted people in the body of Christ, then there's no cause for any kind of self-referential, you know, thinking about who I am in the body of Christ or who they are or what our roles are or who's, who's really got the best position or what, what does it really mean for me to be useful in the body of Christ? Well, it certainly doesn't mean just doing that. It must mean doing something like that because everybody knows that something like that is much more prominent. I mean, it's that kind of attitude. Totally worldly notions about status and importance and significance that they had just brought into their body life. And so this is the Apostle Paul in this discussion of spiritual gifts, really pulling all that apart. The thinking behind it, the, the, maybe the, the askewed theology that's in play, that's, that they're, they're operating with, some of the pagan notions of worship and practice or societal ranking or status. All these things were, were part of his concern. So it comes here naturally as no surprise that this attitude of elitism or arrogance is what has influenced their views in the church there, particularly in this arena of spiritual gifts and even their veneration of or exaltation of what you might just crudely refer to as, as maybe the more impressive gifts or the more impressive people with these impressive gifts. I mean, it's, just, it's almost middle school in terms of when you break it down. It's that kind of thing. It's, it's uh, these things that tend to impress us. We, and we've made this statement before in, in, throughout this study. I mean, the truth of the matter is we are all susceptible to this because we tend to be impressed by impressive people. And usually that measurement of, of impressive is often informed by the... The, the impressive notions of our time, of our secular age, not so much by spiritual notions, not so much by spiritual conceptions or spiritual truth, biblical truth. So this is what the Apostle Paul is continuing to go after and even hearkening back to this sort of penetrating rhetorical question in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, like, why would you do this? Like, why would you think in these ways you are the body of Christ. You are the body of Christ solely by the will of God, by the pleasure of God. And like a human body, you're comprised of all these diverse members, all of which are important, and not just important, but interdependent. This body metaphor that he speaks of earlier in the chapter is that it's the, the, um, the clear statement of interdependency. In other words, for the body to be fully functioning and healthy, there is, physiologically, there is full interdependency. And so the same is true for the, the church, the body of Christ. And insofar as, as that is not recognized and that is not in operation, well, then the, the warning to us, even as a local body of believers here, the caution to us is that, it, is that we will not be healthy. That we will not be functioning in our fullest fruitful health that God would call us to, that, that Christ would desire for his body, because we are not recognizing the importance and interdependency of all the parts of the body, of all the members of the body. And so here at the end of this chapter, he's summarizing and concluding this central argument. 
This is what he's going after. And he's been doing this throughout this chapter. And he, he earlier in the chapter, we, we recall, he listed off several illustrative spiritual gifts. And then he kind of does this again in a, in a more of a summary fashion as well here at the end of this chapter. He, he provides this, this list again, but it's not an exhaustive accounting of all possible spiritual gifts in the body of Christ, of course. It is an il- illustration of the broader point. It's to illustrate this diversity within the unity of the body of Christ, the sovereign ordained diversity within the sovereign composition of the body of Christ as, as the Spirit has put the parts together. So all these offices and gifts are, are examples of what the diverse gifts and offices are operating within the life of the church. So first, he gives us these Spirit-appointed offices that are given to the church right there in the first part of verse 28. Uh, this, the, the, the offices, we've been talking about this, we've sort of been breaking this up uh, in, in various pieces to talk about it from a, a, a few different perspectives. Like I said, this gift of prophecy, for example, and dealing with that and the, the nature of the, the, the apostle's role in the life of the church. But, but just kind of getting back to the, the language of the text, he says, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. So you have this list beginning with what we would just maybe refer to in our vernacular as offices, roles, functions within the life of the church. And we talked about this some time ago, the nature of this word, this word that is translated appointed, is, it carries a connotation of, of it's sort of an official appointment. It's not just sort of a, a general uh, appointment. It does have sort of an official tone to it. And we cited numerous references previously um, back in the, the Gospels, even when Christ appointed his apostles or his disciples. But you'll notice there that there is this numerically ordered sequence, first, second, and third. That is in the text. That is not some transliteration or sort of filler, English filler in the text. Literally, you have the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Spirit numerically ordering these particular offices in the context of his instruction to the Corinthians. First, second, third. Now, I think we had mentioned this previously, but just to sort of reiterate the point, this, I don't believe, needs to be viewed as some kind of, um, some kind of a hierarchical list, some kind of listing of, okay, you got the, the big-time apostles, and then underneath them are, you know, second in command, the prophets, and then it's not that kind of listing. Rather, it's more of a, a chronological list in terms of the, the founding of the church, the foundations of the church, and what, how it is being built. Gordon Fee, in his commentary, says it like this. He says, why then does Paul rank the first three? That is more difficult to answer, but it is almost certainly related to his own conviction as to the role these three ministers play in the church. It is not so much uh, that one is more important than the other, nor that this is necessarily their order of authority, but that one has precedence over the other in the founding and building up of the local assembly. Now, I say that not to say that, that there was not any kind of legitimate apostolic authority invested in, for example, the Apostle Paul. Certainly, we know there was. But in terms of the, the nature of this textual arrangement here, first, second, and third, it seems to be more of a, a reference to this idea or this principle that he's already talked about even earlier in the letter about him coming and laying a foundation, laying the foundation in the church. And when you think about this just generally in the, in the 
the history of the early church as we see it uh, in, the, in the New Testament, you see, first of all, Jesus choosing or appointing the 12, the first 12 apostles. Then you have Judas betraying Jesus and taking his own life and then being replaced by Matthias as an, an apostle. So you have the, the new addition to that 12. And then you have the apostle Paul, who in his own words is the one who was untimely born, as he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as the apostle to the Gentiles who was actually called and commissioned by the resurrected Christ and therefore sort of fill, fulfilled the essential qualifications to be one of these apostles, to be chosen directly by Christ and to be a witness to his resurrection. Those are the two primary qualifiers for this special office. And so these apostles were the ones in the actual uh, working out or, or if you want to call it rolling out of the New Testament church, they were the first ones to begin to lay that foundation, even beginning with Peter himself in that sermon at Pentecost. But you see the Apostle Paul sort of picking up on that theme even in his letter to the Corinthians. So these, these apostles, along with the prophets, as we'll see, you see this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, were, were responsible for planting and establishing and teaching authoritative doctrine and appointing local leaders in the churches. There was this foundation-laying ministry and priority that was given to these apostles. And they, their ministry and their message, as we've speak, spoken of before, was accompanied by signs and wonders and miracles and power, as Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, to authenticate their message and their, their authority as being sent by Christ himself to establish the church. So that's the apostles. We're not going to talk any more about that. We've spoken about that at length previously to, to sort of separate them off from some modern, contemporary, and false notions of new apostles and that kind of thing. These were unique people, unique men, uniquely chosen for a unique purpose in a unique time. And, and we talked about that at length previously. Again, prophets, we spent quite a bit of time talking about these prophets. These prophets in the New Testament were in the order of the Old Testament prophets in that they were given revelation of, of the divine will. They were called to proclaim that uh, to the new believers in the early church as the inspired writings of the New Testament were being written. And, and over that period of time of inscripturation, you had these prophets alongside the apostles that were bringing sort of inspired truth and instruction to bear on the church. Again, it's kind of difficult for us to uh, sort of tactically, you know, get our minds around that and how that worked. I mean, obviously this was, again, a sovereign work of the Spirit to both um, uh, proclaim but also preserve and protect the truth and the doctrines of the New Testament church and the New Covenant uh, new covenant uh, doctrine in the work of Christ, the atoning work of Christ and bringing in the Gentiles into the people of God and bringing in the church as, as the people of God together, Jew and Gentile, slave and free. So the, the, the nature of this prophetic work and this prophetic office in the life of the church was such that there were clearly men in the life of the church who were given divine understanding, inspired understanding of these doctrines and the, and the redemptive work of God that they wouldn't have otherwise had. 
That's the idea. That's the, that's the, the principle of this prophetic gift. It's, it's that they were able to communicate truth in the, the assemblies, in the lo- these local churches that were forming, according to something that was given to them by God, not something that they had learned. Because you're not talking about people who necessarily grew up in the synagogues and you know, had this Old Testament heritage and all of that. So their understanding of this redemptive work and plan of God and to be able to proclaim that in truth alongside the apostles, even under the doctrinal authority of the apostles, as we'll see in just a moment, was sort of the role that, that was being played there as the, as the church's foundation of doctrine and truth and practice was being laid and, and the truths of those, those doctrines were being inscripturated. These, these prophets, as we talked about before, they were held to the same Old Testament standards as, as the Old Testament prophets were. And that kind of goes against the argument for a different kind of New Testament prophet, as we talked about at length the last couple of weeks, that is argued for by many uh, contemporary theologians, Wayne Grudem and John Piper and others. They, they were held to the same standard for predictive accuracy, for doctrinal alignment with other truth, and for moral integrity. Those were the three sort of primary standards or tests to determine whether or not someone was a true prophet. And so they were to be judged by that standard. But not only that, these prophets were, their message was to be judged by that of the apostles and their doctrine. The apostle Paul speaks of this even in this letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 37 to 38, which we'll look at obviously in more detail when we get to it. But just let me read those two verses to you. He says to these Corinthians, he says, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Now, as we've discussed before, this matter of false prophecy or false prophets was a massive and even growing concern. Even as you see the New Testament period kind of unfolding, and even in the writings of the New Testament, by the time you get to John's writings, there is a grave concern about this explosion of false prophets. And so this matter of testing them and having them be authenticated and tested against Old Testament standards of predictive accuracy and doctrinal fidelity and moral integrity was of paramount importance, but also for there to be alignment with, clear alignment with the teaching, the foundational doctrinal teaching of the apostles was a matter of grave importance. And in fact, what you find in the second letter to the Corinthians are false prophets who are seeking to undermine the Apostle Paul himself and basically undermine him even as a legitimate apostle. So this was, this was a very significant sort of contemporary problem that the Apostle Paul was concerned about even in the writing of this first, uh, first Corinthians letter as it pertained particularly to this matter of prophets and prophecy. We'll obviously get more into the details of that when we get to chapter 14. Listen to what uh, MacArthur says about uh, this, particular, uh, this particular office of prophet in the New Testament. He says, like the apostles, their office ceased with the completion of the New Testament, just as the Old Testament prophets disappeared when that testament was completed some 400 years before Christ. The church was established upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That's Ephesians 2.20. Once the foundation was laid, the work of the apostles and prophets was finished. The work of interpreting and proclaiming the now written word was taken over by evangelists, pastors, te- pastor teachers, and teachers. 
The purpose of apostles and prophets was to equip the church with right doctrine. The purpose of evangelists, pastor teachers, and teachers is to equip the church for effective ministry. So that just kind of gives you a sense of, of the, the foundation-laying role and function of apostles and prophets that Paul refers to in Ephesians quite clearly. That was their role, and he also speaks of it even in this letter early on uh, in, in the letter to the uh, Corinthians. Now, the next office that he mentions is this office of teacher. It could also be pastor-teacher, as Ephesians 4.11 speaks of, um, but it also could be different. Again, remember, we're talking about, you know, not something that is, we, we can't approach this like it's some kind of, you know, spreadsheet of gifts that we have to do to figure out which one lines up with us. That's not how you need to approach this list. So um, some think that the, there's a teacher and there's a pastor teacher, and these are two different sort of uh, offices in the life of the church or gifts in the life of the church. Some would put them together. Uh, Calvin says this, the office of teacher consists in taking care that sound doctrines be maintained and propagated in order that the purity of religion may be kept up in the church. So the, the office of teacher is one in which the doctrines of the church are propagated, are maintained, are upheld so that the purity of the church and its doctrine is maintained and, 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 and cared for. So that the people of God are shepherded from the word of God. And you might say that there is a distinction uh, or there's sort of this element in the teaching office that has to do with uh, not just a proclamation or a sounding forth, but of explication or explanation. Making sure that the people of God understand the word of God and the implications of it so that that doctrine is a living doctrine in the life of God's people. It's not just intellectual acquisition of information that they can then noodle on and talk about in, you know, around a cup of coffee. It's, it's the propagation of living biblical life in the body of Christ, and that has to be carried forward by those who are teaching and explaining the implications of these inc- incredibly important biblical truths. One important note to think about when you think about the, the, the office of teacher and the gift of teaching, all appointed teachers have the spiritual gift of teaching, right? I mean, that would kind of be logical, you would hope. I mean, that would kind of be a bummer to appoint someone as a teacher and they, anyway, we're not talking about that. Um, all appointed teachers have the spiritual gift of teaching, but not all with the spiritual gift of teaching are appointed teachers, So there is a distinction here in Paul's list of an an office of teacher, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that only those in the office of teacher are given the gift of teaching in the life of the church. And of course, we know that. I mean, you experience that. Um, In fact, I would say that uh, every parent should pray that they have the gift of teaching, right? I mean, if you're trying to teach your children, you're, you're in the role of teacher, no matter what, but the, the fact of the matter is, is that in the life of the church, there are many who are teaching and who are teaching with a very effective gift given by the Spirit of God, but they may not necessarily be in some kind of official appointed role of, of teacher per se. And so both are critical and important in the life of the church, but there's just a distinction here in the text uh, between those two. Um, it's interesting when you think about this for a moment, again, the struggle 
at the heart of the struggle, or maybe at the heart of Paul's concern, was this matter of the Corinthians' affinity for the showy things, for the public displays of perceived wisdom. You remember going all the way back earlier on in the letter, the first few chapters, where the Apostle Paul is dealing with this whole matter of wisdom and oratory. And when I came to you, I did not come with persuasive speech. In other words, I'm trying to separate myself from this nonsense that's going on there. So I didn't try to come to be you know, an impressive orator because I know that in the life of the church, you guys have a tremendous affinity for impressive oratory regardless of content, regardless of the truth of the content. You just like to be wild by how, how people speak. So in the same vein, there was this affinity, this prideful sort of, uh, you might call shallow affinity in the life of the, the Corinthian church for what we might just call, again, the showy gifts, the you know, teaching, prophecy, you know, being an apostle, being the one who's up front, being the, I mean, I want to be the one that lays the foundation. I, I mean, that's the most important thing. That's what I want to do, you know, that kind of thing. It's just that, that inclination toward recognition that was a, a huge problem amongst the Corinthians. But think about this for a moment, just from the standpoint of our understanding of Scripture. Think, for example, first of all, about apostles. And what Paul said himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 9 to 13, I want to be an apostle. I want to be the man. Well, here's what Paul says. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. You want to sign up to be an apostle? This is what the apostle Paul says. This is what it means to be an apostle. Suffering, disrepute slander, physical hunger and deprivation, high, high risk activity, threats to your life. You want to be an apostle? And then think of prophets. Jesus himself said, truly I say to you in Luke chapter four, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. You look at Jesus teaching and, and, and sort of rebukes to the Pharisees all throughout the Gospels, and he, he accuses them of being those who kill the prophets, who murder the prophets. So you want to sign up to be a prophet? And you think of the teacher, the role of the teacher, and James gives this sobering warning in chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. We who teach, he says will be judged with greater strictness. So the very idea that there is this, you know, this affinity towards sort of the showy gifts, it clearly reveals a complete lack of recognition of these truths as it relates to those roles or those functions in the life of the church. There is ridicule and persecution and even threat of life. And ultimately, the apostles, except for John, were, were martyred. And the prophets are on the receiving end of the same kinds of things and they're rejected 
And then the teachers are cautioned, really in that whole context of James. Think of, think of the fact, think of the way that James speaks of the tongue. And it is, it is a, a, a fire and it sets the whole world on fire. And then think of the role or function of teaching where you're speaking all the time. And Proverbs says, where words are many, sin is not lacking. And so James gives this caution. Are you sure? Are you sure you want to do this? Because you're going to be judged more strictly. Sometimes when I go back and I listen to some of my lessons just to remember what I believe, um, I, 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 literally I'm like, I can't, I, 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 there's a... There's a there's a weight that you feel when you listen to yourself and think, I did not handle that well. That was not reflective of being diligent in the word. I did not serve those people well and bringing to them the truth with clarity. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a sobering thing. And so the Corinthians are like, you know, wanting to be, you know, on the, on the big stage, in other words. And multiple places in Scripture would caution against that. So you have, first of all, the Apostle Paul giving us these spirit-appointed offices in the church. And then he goes on to talk about spirit-apportioned gifts given to the church. Again, another listing similar to what we saw before. We, we saw miracles and gifts of healing in the prior list. And we talked about that previously at some length. These sign gifts uh, that were given to uh, authenticate the message of the gospel and the messengers that were sent by Christ. Primarily, that was the nature of, of those gifts as they manifest in the life of the early church. We talked a little bit about various kinds of tongues as a sign gift. And of course, we're going to look at that in much greater depth when we get to chapter 14. But notice we have two new entrants here on this list that's not in the list prior, further up in the chapter. This first one, this new reference, a new reference gift is this gift of helping. This is is service in the broadest sense, this gift of helping. It's, it's, It's a wonderful gift. It's a wonderful reference point for the Apostle Paul to include. John MacArthur says this, it's a word... This word for helping is an especially beautiful word, meaning to take the burden off someone else and place it on oneself. That gift doubtlessly is one of the most widely distributed of any and is a gift that is immeasurably important in supporting those who minister other gifts. Paul used the same term in his final words to the Ephesian elders as he met with them at Miletus on his way to certain arrest in Jerusalem. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. This is a wonderful gift to include in this list. We okay? Okay, all right. The fact that Paul would include this in this gift mix in my estimation, here in this chapter is a powerful indication of the sweeping significance of this gift in the life of the church. This gift of helps has enormous import in the life of the church. 
Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes, for example, Epaphroditus in Philippians chapter 2, verses 25 to 30. He says, I, have thought it, I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. This is the heart of someone with the gift of helps. They're distressed because they find out that you had heard that they were ill. And so they're concerned about your concern for them. He says, indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Listen to the heart of the Apostle Paul for this dear brother. It's powerful. He says, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, we can talk about the apostle, and we can talk about the prophet and the teacher, but this gift, indispensable. This is kind of an example of what the apostle Paul was saying earlier in the chapter. We, we want to elevate and give greater honor to these kinds of gifts, just like the Apostle Paul just did in Philippians to Epaphroditus. Someone who's concerned, so they're, they're sort of their selflessness, their, their utter emptying of themselves is demonstrated or manifested by this, this concern for others because they find out that they have concern about you. It's astounding. And, and then they, they are willing to risk their own lives. They're willing to take on the burden, even to the point of their own detriment, take on the burden of others. So this gift of helping is not just, listen, I'm, yeah, I'll, I'll put a few chairs away. I'm good with that. Yeah, I'll serve my rotation every so often, but, you know, if I'm sleepy, I'll sleep in. Again, if I'm, if I'm making you feel guilty, I'm, I'm not thinking of anybody in particular. I'm, I'm just, I guess what I'm trying, I'm trying to make the point that this, this goes way deeper than that. As you can see, this is a profound spirit-enabled gifting to want to help to the nth degree, even at your, the expense of your own well-being and your own life. There's such a desire for helping the brethren that you're willing to, to give up everything to help. How indispensable is that gift in the life of the church? It's hard to, hard to fathom this gift of helping. And then this other gift of administrating, this is also a new reference in Paul's list. This is just simply the gift of leadership. Literally, the word means to pilot a ship. Um, it's, that's literally the, the nature of that term. So it has this idea of sort of keeping the church on course, keeping the church on mission. Um, you know, some people would a, a, align with its sort of organizational abilities or skills and that kind of thing. And that certainly that could be uh, part and parcel of it. But it's just broadly speaking, this, this gifting, this, this, this gifting of the Lord of certain people to be able to kind of see the big picture and see the horizon and recognize, you know, what, how, what we need to do to navigate this ship so that it stays on course. It's that kind of, the, the word gives that kind of sense, if you will. 
and how that might manifest itself in the life of the church. And certainly, I think it's fair to assume that this gift should be present among those in pastoral leadership or in roles of elders, even I would say in those who are deacons or serving in any kind of formal position of leadership in the life of the church. In fact, if you think about this, and and we're actually currently uh, in the month of February, we're doing our elder nominations. So it might serve us well to just be reminded of at least the qualifications we see in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So you have this indication of oversight and leadership that's kind of built into the fabric of these qualifications. He must be, he must not be a recent convert. So there's a maturity element or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and into a snare of the devil. So you have this, these sort of um, qualifications for an elder that would encapsulate elements of this gift of leadership, of being able to shepherd and steer the ship, if you will, steer the direction of the church and keep it on mission. It's a pretty straightforward gift. And now he goes on, after he gives us this, this listing of, of these gifts... Um, He then provides what we'll just call the spirit-determined diversity in the church. He he recalls that. He he reiterates that, this spirit-determined diversity in the church. And he does that, as we mentioned before, through this series of rhetorical questions. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Really, there is a, a, a... a particle of negation in the text there. So it really could be translated, all are not. All are not apostles, are they? So the implication is certainly not. And so this is just Paul's way of rhetorically highlighting the fact that there is a diversity within the body of Christ amongst both these appointed people in their gifts, but also the gifts themselves. And that is by God's design. That is by the Spirit's determination. And again, this is just a caution, if you will, for certainly to the Corinthians, but to us as well, a caution against becoming too imbalanced in our understanding of what constitutes real giftedness in the life of the church, real usefulness in the life of the church. And churches can get out of balance in that regard uh, for, for any number of reasons. But the Apostle Paul is meaning to highlight the fact that that if you find yourself either individually or collectively as a body of believers beginning to gravitate towards some small collection of gifts or offices as preferable, then you're failing to recognize the sovereign purposes of God and the way that he has determined the diverse nature of these gifts and offices in the life of the church. And then finally in this section, and this will be sort of our, our this is a segue verse, okay? So I'm going to pick this up next week and go into much more detail. But you have this spirit-directed virtue, or the spirit-directed virtues, you could say, in the church. Look at verse 31. It says, But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and now I will show you still a more excellent way. Now this is an interesting little verse here. Uh, If you translate this, 
earnestly desire the higher gifts, and you assume that that earnestly desire word in the Greek there is to be considered an imperative verb, meaning a command, then that places upon us as believers this obligation. You as a believer, if you are to obey what the Apostle Paul is saying here, you are to earnestly desire something he refers to as the higher gifts. So are you guys ready to start doing that? Which ones are the higher gifts again? Right? So you get into that whole dynamic, that whole question. Uh, the interesting note that I, I'm, I'm still kind of grappling with a little bit, but I'm, I'm inclined to, to agree with this, that the fact of the matter is, is that this term earnestly desire, the, the, it's, the, it's in the same form, whether it's in the imperative or command tense, or the indicative, meaning not a command. This verse could actually legitimately be translated, but you earnestly desire the higher gifts. It could be translated, this is your, this is your mistake. And now I will show you still a more excellent way. Now, to think about this a little more broadly... As I've, already, as I've already sort of introduced here in our discussion and reminded us of, would not it be a little bit odd for the Apostle Paul to labor to make the point that all the gifts are important, they're all interdependent upon one another, and in fact, what we might consider the lesser gifts, those are the ones that we are called to honor, give greater honor to, and if the context, the, the Corinthian context is characterized by arrogance and by an, an affinity for a higher type of gift, a more showy kind of gift, then it would stand to reason that it would be an odd command for the Apostle Paul to issue here that now, let me close this up by telling you, but go ahead and, go ahead and earnestly desire those. So, I would, I, I, I'm inclined to believe that this should be understood as an indicative verb and that a, a, a accurate translation could be, but you earnestly desire the higher gifts. He's making a statement about the Corinthians and what they desire. Now, just in fairness, to, to, to give you a sort of a textual rationale for, for seeing it as a command, as it seems to be translated in the ESV, but earnestly desire the higher gifts as opposed to, but you earnestly desire the higher gifts is a, is a descriptive statement. If you look at chapter 14, verse 1, it says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And then in verse 39 of chapter 14, I believe it's 39, he says, so my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. So in both of those verses, chapter 14, verse 1, and chapter 14, verse 39, you have that same earnestly desire term used in both of those verses. So because of the emphasis on prophecy in chapter 14, many, particularly in the continuationist uh, camp, would argue that the higher gifts are prophecy in particular. We'll just kind of leave it at that. That we're called to earnestly desire prophecy. So... In one fell swoop, if that's the case, I just pretty much undermined at least two or three lessons that I've already taught. 
I think that it's more in line with the, the argument, the flow of the Apostle Paul's argument that has been layer upon layer of rationale uh, against any kind of showiness, any kind of appeal to uh, the, the, what might be considered a higher gift. I think it's a, a reasonable expectation to say this could be translated, but you earnestly desire the higher gifts, and now I will show you still a more excellent way. And then when we get into 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he talks about if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. That, to me, from the standpoint of contextual and argument flow, is pretty sound. (laughs) So, I would say that the point here in verse 31 is to provide what I just called spirit-directed virtues in the church. He is directing the Corinthians toward the more excellent way, the more excellent virtues. And as we will see, and I'm sure many of you, if not all of you, are familiar with this particular chapter, he is going to point them to the highest of all, which is love. And he is going to contrast that with all these other manifestations of giftedness that are essentially made null and void and useless if there is not love amongst the brethren in the life of the church. So he's going to move us into this He's going to direct us toward these high virtues, the highest of which is love. So we're going to get into that next time. And we've got, I finished early. That rarely happens. Um, Any closing thoughts or comments uh, before we wrap up? I usually don't have time to do this, or I usually don't give you time, I guess. I just rattle on until the very end. Any thoughts, any, any comments before we pray? Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've, I've struggled with that, too, as you know. I mean, to, to, for, me, for me to uh, try to mount some kind of you know, exegetical case against the likes of Wayne Grudem or John Piper, it doesn't seem altogether wise for someone like me to do that. But I, I'm just saying that once, I mean, after reading their material, I, it's, I, I don't understand it. I, it. It's the only thing I can... And I've had a conversation with someone last week about this. The only thing that I can point to, which, which is often a, a very strong influence on people in terms of either shifting or changing their doctrinal convictions about things, is, is the influence of what you might just call personal experience that rattles you. So I'll give you a little anecdote. So... When I was in college, I went to um, England on a mission trip. It's interesting that I went to England for a mission trip, right? The mission field of England, uh, near Wales, actually, western England. Anyway, um, and I remember, uh, just vaguely, it was a thousand years ago, but I remember sort of being uh, prepared by those that were leading the trip that 
you know, this, the, the, this is a very dark area that we're going to, spiritually dark area. Um, and so just, you know, be prepared for that kind of thing. So I had a heightened expectation. I went into that trip with this heightened expectation of, you know, kind of a this present darkness, you know, demonic encounter, you know, the smell of sulfur in the air and all that sort of stuff. I was younger, obviously. Um, but I just remember having a few conversations with some young people on that trip. And I remember feeling what I, at that time, might characterize as demonic, oppressive feelings. Like I was in the presence of something demonic. Um, now, I, I, I don't know what that was. I don't know how to necessarily characterize that in hindsight, but I do know that I brought to those conversations something before I even had them. And I do know that, you know, our minds can work in strange ways and, and, and we are emotional people. And, you know, I, so I, I just, I know at the time I went away from that with a strong conviction about what I was experiencing and what I felt in that moment. So I just know that there are people that have these experiences of different types and in their mind, they are very real and they are very, you know, confirming. Um, and yet in some way they might be colliding with their predetermined convictions about, about spiritual matters. And so, you know, they start to grapple with those things and then they have to kind of figure out what to do with it. And I, you know, I think that that might have some impact on some of this, um, but I don't know. It's hard, it's hard to explain that, that particular view of a lesser kind of prophecy in the New Testament. It's just it's hard to explain that. Yes? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, there is legitimately, that, that term, earnestly desire, the Greek term there, it's a strong term. I mean, it's, you can't get around that. Um, but I think that the, the pursue love, it's, it's, it's bringing balance to it. It's, it's, it's the Apostle Paul bringing the entire sweep of what he's been teaching from chapter 12 through verse 13 and now into verse 14 kind of into full view. And so I, I, think, that, I think that you get into matters of just uh, principles. That's why I've said this, is, this really comes down to principles of sound biblical interpretation because what, it's, what I've seen over and over again is a desire to sort of I don't want to be too crude in my descriptions and, and insulting to people unnecessarily, but it's almost like there's a cherry picking of verses to sort of formulate the argument. And I, what I'm certain of is that the Apostle Paul is in the middle of something that spans, well, in, 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 the, in, the, in the micro level, it spans chapters 12, 13, and 14. It's three whole chapters of instruction around the same general subject which is in the context of the larger flow of the letter. So I think that just sound principles of biblical interpretation and context and the flow of argument and all that, I mean, when you bring that to bear and then you start moving out from there and comparing current manifestations of these things to what we see described in the, in the New Testament or even the Old Testament prophecy, and, and you, start, you go, that, well, that's not the same thing. Like what we're seeing on that TV station, or that's not the same thing. Um, 
And then you actually go back and you look at the, the, the early church history and you recognize that this was, this was not a major issue. And, and in fact, there was heretical movements that were sort of counted as heretical in church history. And that this sort of emerged, you know, at the beginning of the 20th century as this new movement. The, the, that, that to me is where the, the sweep of the arguments are, they're, they're bigger in nature than just uh, one particular verse. And so getting, getting more effective at articulating that, but just, you still can't count on people receiving that. Um, that's, it's a hard, those are hard thing, conversations to have with people because they're kind of, their Christian spiritual life is really tied to these kinds of manifestations and experiences. And you're basically calling upon them to just abandon all of that. It's tough. It's a tough proposition, admittedly. All right, uh, 1028, we actually went all the way to the, the bell here. Let me pray for us. Father, we're grateful for the time. Pray for you, your continued guidance in our study. Give us wisdom. Give us clarity. Help us to be faithful to your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.